Well, good morning to you. It's awful nice to see you once again this morning. Uh, they've asked me to handle my announcement uh, right before I speak. So there's this little flyer out there that you might be interested in seeing, Bible Land Tours 2020, um, leading two of them, Lord willing, next, uh, next year uh, to Israel, June 14th to 23rd and then to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Those seven churches are found in Revelation 2 and 3, by the way, and that'll be October 4th to 12th. We're limiting each tour to the first 50 people uh, who sign up and send their deposit in. So if you join us on one of these tours or both, I think I can make two guarantees to you. Number one, your life will never be the same again. And number two, the Bible will never be the same to you again. So think about it, pray about it. We'd love to have you. And uh, if you'd like to just check it out, you don't know, you're not certain, sounds interesting, like more information. Uh, the meeting's gonna be a week from tomorrow night, uh, September, <coughs> excuse me, September 9th, downstairs at the cafe, starting at seven o'clock p.m. sharp. And uh, you'll get all the information you need initially uh, at these meetings. And we simply ask you, if you would, just so we can know how many are coming, if you'd sign up out in the uh, uh, foyer at the uh, welcome desk, please. Appreciate that very much. Romans chapter 5 is where uh, you can turn if you would like to uh, in the Bible. It's been a great privilege uh, for me to speak on the attributes of God knowing God, and you know him by learning of his attributes for really the past 10 weeks. We're all looking forward to Pastor Rob and Katie being back, and they should be in our service next Sunday, and then he'll pick up and start back in the pulpit two weeks uh, from today. But as I was thinking about the love of God uh, in the message this morning, I thought how uh, proper and fitting it is that we uh, culminate the service by uh, going to the table of the Lord where we find the greatest expression uh, of the love of God. Many of us remember the 1967 song, All You Need Is Love, uh, written by John Lennon, recorded by the Beatles. But let me just remind you, as John MacArthur, I think, correctly states about that, but what usually goes by the name love in popular culture is not authentic love at all. It's a deadly fraud. Far from being all you need, it's something you need to desperately avoid. Probably there's no attribute of God that is so widely believed as the love of God, but so misunderstood as well. So we wanna make sure we have at least some kind of grasp on just what is the love of God. It seems to me you can take all the attributes of God and put them under one of three headings where a quality is attributed to God. The Bible actually says God is this. For instance, Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And when you think about that, you can put his self-existence, his immutability, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, all goes under that one truth that God is spirit. 
Then the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1.5 that God is light. So when you think about God is light, it has to do with his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, and his wrath. Those attributes go under God as light. And then the last one is what John also records in 1 John 4.8, and it's that God is love. And of course, when we think of the attribute of love, we think of grace, we think of mercy, kindness, and faithfulness. R.C. Sproul gives us a good word of warning with this thought. The normal problem we face is not that people ignore God's love, rather people separate his love from his other attributes. I think that's true. If you talk to the average person on the street, you'll find this to be true. So uh, many times when we have messages or thoughts or expressions on God's sovereignty or his holiness or his justice or even his wrath, we hear this objection, yes, but my God is what? A God of love. And what they mean by that, as I understand it, is that God's love is incompatible with the thought of justice, sovereignty, or holiness, or justice. St. Augustine once called the cross a pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. I don't think there is one event in all the Bible where all the attributes of God come together in such a powerful way as the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and especially his love. So let's at least try to get some comprehension, understanding about the love of God. First of all, the nature of God's love. Now we could go and describe all the different words for love, and there are four in the Greek language. Some of you know them. Stoikao is a patriotic love. Eros is an erotic love. It's never found in the scriptures. Phileo is kind of a, a, an emotional, friendly kind of love. And then there's agape love, and that's the love of God. That's the love that is self-sacrifice and always looking to the object of the one Loved. So when we look at the nature of God's love, we see first that it's uninfluenced. Uh, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now what that passage says to us is this, Israel did nothing, merited nothing whatsoever that deserved the favor of God upon her. Out of all the nations of the world, there was nothing special about her that, that influenced God to choose them. But out of God's sovereignty and his plan, he simply chose them, and the scriptures give the reason, just because the Lord loves you. So that tells me that God is influenced by anything about us, who you are, who I am, or what we have done. It wasn't because Israel is a great nation, it was simply because of God, just because he loves you. Now we come to the New Testament, we look at Romans chapter five, verses six to eight, and listen to these words. 
For while we were yet weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak, that's you and me. Ungodly, I didn't have a thought toward God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we are yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you a question, and maybe you could talk about it over on lunch sometime. For whom would you be willing to die? Now, it's probably not a fair question because none of us really know what we would do in any situation unless we're actually in it. But I think if we just think about it casually, uh, some of us have an idea, well, I think I'd die for my spouse, my children, my grandchildren, my parents, my family. And then we start not sure about going into other areas. Our hearts were moved not long ago when we were introduced to Andre and Jordan and Chondo. You remember she was the one, Jordan, who they found her dead and she was uh, covering and had thrown herself on the two-month-old baby son, Paul, when they were just going to Walmart to get the things they needed for school for the other children. And then her uh, husband, also Andre, was killed while attempting to shield his wife and son down in El Paso, Texas, just a few weeks ago on a Saturday morning. When we hear that a father, a mother, gives their life for the son, or the father tries to save his wife and son by giving his life. There's something in us that that kind of rings true and maybe we think, well, I think I'd be willing to do that as well. And as great as that is, God's love is much greater. Listen to Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, notice he's gone from weak and ungodly and sinners, as bad as those are descriptions of you and me, Notice he goes from that, he says, not only that, but while we were enemies of God, God reconciled us to himself. We can at least understand why moms and dads give their life for their children, but we don't understand why a person gives his life for his enemy. We have veterans in this church here, and we're going to celebrate in a wonderful way on Veterans Day Sunday, Lord willing, this year with a special service. Uh, some have been in battle. Some have been at the front lines of battle and war. And we've all heard of stories of soldiers who have given their life uh, for their fellow soldiers. We've seen that a person, a grenade is thrown and it's gonna blow up a group around them, and one soldier puts himself on the grenade and he's blown to bits. And then the other soldiers are saved. And even that we understand somewhat, especially if you were in the military, where you're trained in your family and you're watching each other's back, and you realize every day you're in harm's way. We at least even understand that to some degree. Would I be willing to? I don't know. I hope so, but... We at least understand it. But in both those cases, somebody is dying for someone they love. 
the parents for a child, the husband for a family, the soldiers for his brothers in battle. Let's, let's go back to that war illustration, only this time the American soldier has been captured by the enemy. He's been taken back to enemy lines. He's been tortured, he's been beaten. They're trying to break him, doing everything they can, beating him unmercifully, day and night. And then at last, there's a rescue that is mounted by the United States Special Forces. The American forces move in, and his captors surround him, and suddenly out of nowhere, there comes a projectile. It's a grenade, and it's thrown right down in front of the enemies as well as the captive soldier. And the American soldier counts one, two, and then it's gonna explode. And he throws himself now on the grenade, taking the full force of the blast, dying in the process, but dying for his enemy captors who tortured him. He didn't die for his friends, he didn't die for his loved ones, he died for his enemies. Do you know of anyone who would do that? I do. So do you. The Lord Jesus Christ alone, right? I'll tell you one thing, I wouldn't die for my enemies. Jesus did exactly that 2,000 years ago. He died for those who crucified him. That was you, by the way. That was I. My sins put him on the cross. Wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus in the ultimate sense. It wasn't the Roman government. It wasn't Pontius Pilate. It wasn't the soldiers. It was you and me. Our sins put him on the cross. He died for those sins. He died for those who hated him. He died for those who rejected him. He died for those who cheered as the nails were driven in his hands. He died for the soldiers. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. He died for us. That's the love of God. Totally uninfluenced by who you are or what you have done. Even dying for his enemies. His love is uninfluenced. Number two, his love is eternal. Because God is eternal, it follows that his attribute of love is also eternal, meaning it doesn't have any beginning, it never began, and it will never end. Listen to Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You say, well, what does that have to do with, with me today? What's that have to do with you? Well, it has a lot to do. Since God's love is eternal, he can never stop loving. It's just his nature to love, and he loves you. And that's so different from the love we're used to. We are so fickle. A man's love can turn toward another woman. A woman's love can turn to another man. How many times have I heard in my study, I don't love him anymore. How many times have I heard a teenager say, I hate my parents? A parent of a constantly rebellious child. I'm so ashamed to admit it, but some have said, sometimes I just wish they were dead. But God's love is everlasting. 
You don't need to win his love. You never did. You already have it. He sees the worst in you, and he loves you still. Your sins of the past, he knows them all. His fa your failings of the future, not one will surprise him. Some of you I know have asked, and we've talked, and many of you have thought about it. You've had a child. You've had a grandchild. And you go back to that time when they were eight years old or 10 or 14 or 17, and they trusted Christ and they were baptized, but now they're on a far drift from God. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, Pastor, what happens if that person dies? My answer is always the same. Number one, nobody knows the heart of any other person. Nobody. And I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven someday. God sees that kernel of faith in that point action of faith when a person says, I believe Christ died for me and rose again. I trust him. God sees that. And he will never stop loving them as his child, no matter what they do. You say, well, what about, no matter what they do. Well, what if they, no matter what they do. If they were truly born again, now that's the key. Because any of us can say something but not mean it in the heart. He knows you better than you know yourself and he's reached his verdict. He loves you still. He loves you with an everlasting love. His love is never failing. It's never ending. God will never stop loving us. It's eternal. Thirdly, it's infinite. By infinite, we mean that God's love has no limit. So the eternal aspect has to do with there's never a beginning and there's never an end, but the infinite side of it emphasizes there's no limitation to it. So Paul's prayer for us, Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God. Last Sunday, Kimo and the team led us in that beautiful song we all love, The Love of God is Greater Far. Written by a German immigrant back in 1917 by the name of Frederick Lehman. Most music historians believe it's a true story that the third verse was added a little bit later. Uh, the words were found on an insane asylum room's wall, penciled in, after the quote-unquote crazy person had died. Here were the words he wrote. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. He wasn't so crazy, was he? To be able to write that, he wasn't so crazy. The love of God is also, fourthly, holy. Now, this is where many people get off track because some 
people mistakenly believe that God's love somehow cancels out his holiness. But God's love is built upon his holiness and it couldn't exist apart from it. And if you go down that road, like I mentioned about 10 minutes ago, so when you speak of justice or wrath or holiness or hell or judgment or accountability, and person, oh yeah, yeah, but my God's a God of love, meaning he would never send a person to hell. Once you go down that road, it's a slippery slope and you'll end up with universalism. Well, it's universalism. You've seen it. You've seen the diagram, the mountain, the roads going up the mountain. One is called Islam, one's called Confucian, one's called just the honest atheans, one's called, but all roads lead to the top, which is heaven. They, they picture God's love kind of like he's making vegetable soup and he just throws in some corn and some uh, green beans and some lima beans and cauliflower and broccoli. No reason I don't like vegetable soup. He throws it all in, and then it all comes out, a bowl of vegetable soup. That's the way a lot of people look at God and loving people, that everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Why? Because God is love, but they don't know God's love can never be divorced from his holiness. We ended last week's message on the simple truth of John 3. He believes... And the Son has everlasting life. Can it get any simpler than that? Believe on the Son, you have life. But don't you believe on the Son, you have life. It seems to me you've got to also believe on the Son, you have life. Sir, what must I do to be saved? The greatest theologian in, in the history of the Christian church said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's also simple. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The choice is yours. The choice is yours this morning. You can choose the love of God in Christ and believe on him and have eternal life and forgiveness of sins, or you can choose not to believe on him, not to trust him, and when you die, you will go to hell. And I take no joy in saying that. It's the truth of the gospel. Let's move to the object of God's love. First of all, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't surprise us at all, does it? That God loves his son. At both the baptism and the transfiguration, can you imagine being there? And all of a sudden, this voice comes out of heaven's glory. This is my beloved son, my beloved son. Hear ye him. And then as the son is approaching his arrest in just a few hours and the trials and the scourging and the suffering and the cross. He gathers his disciples and he assumes the role, his role as the high priest and he intercedes for, for himself and he intercedes for the apostles and then he prays for you and me, for those who shall believe on the word, on the apostles' word. That would be you and me. And he says in John 13, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. No surprise. Secondly, God loves the church. 
This is an awesome verse in John 17, 23 that tells the believer, now catch this, what he's saying. He's telling you the believer, he's telling you who have believed that God loves you as much as he loves his own son. We don't question for a moment the depth of the love of God for his only beloved son. But to think that God loves you and God loves me as much as he loves Jesus, it's mind-boggling. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them Believers, even as you have loved me. You love them in the same way you love me. Christ is the head. We're members of the body. Can't separate them. Enjoy the love of God. Relish in the love of God. Don't turn around every hour thinking God's tracking you down to smack you upside the head for doing something wrong. God loves you with an eternal, uninfluenced, infinite, holy love. Let God love you and then tell God you love him. By the way, have you told him lately? Remember the old song, have I told you lately that I love you? Does a day go by you don't say that to your spouse or your children? Listen to yourself on the phone conversation to those of you love. Your last two words are what? Love you. Love you too. Have you said that to God? He says it to you every day. Have you told him how much you love him this morning? You'll have an opportunity to do that. If you haven't. Thirdly, not only the Lord Jesus and the church, God loves Israel. Did God love all of Israel? Yes. Were all the Israelites saved? No. On Yom Kippur was the atoning blood for all the sins of the people of Israel? Yes. Were all the people of Israel saved? No. But God loves all Israel. But only those who believed in their heart that that blood of the, the Passover lamb was simply a, a prophetic expression in type form of the lamb of God who would come and bear the sins of the world. Only those who believed looking to the future, and for us today, only those of us who believe looking 2,000 years to the past. But it all comes through the same avenue. It's by faith and it's through the lamb of God. There's no difference between Genesis, Exodus, Jeremiah, John, Revelation, and today. It's always been by faith, and it's always been only because of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. Why did God love Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. Same reason he loves you. Why does he love you? Just because he loves you. Well, I did no, no matter what you did, just because he loves you. He's uninfluenced by anything you've ever done and ever will do. Fourthly, God loves the world. I'm going to say something here that will upset some of you, and that's okay. Uh, you can be upset. You can even be angry. That's fine. But let me say something that I believe. 
I believe a person's theology is deficient who sees the love of God only being extended to the so-called elect of God. Listen to these words, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. Little children, so he's writing believers. But if any man sins, we have the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, believers, but what? For the sins of the whole world. Now that's a clear teaching that God so loved, what? The world, that he gave his only begotten son. The Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a question I ask every candidate for ordination at a council. I've done it for 50 years. Did Jesus Christ render every man on earth savable? And the answer is yes. We know his death was sufficient for all, but it's only efficacious. I'm trying to impress you now. It's only, <laughs> it's only effective for those who believe. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. God loves the Son, the church, Israel, and the world, and that means you. God loves you. All with a mighty, unfluenced, eternal, infinite, and holy love. Let's take another, one more point, and then we're going to come and really worship him and love him. The benefits of God's love. God's love delights in us as his family. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Love always takes pleasure in its object. God enjoys and loves his creation. And the writers of scriptures tell us time and time again, why were we recreated? We are created for his pleasure and for his glory. We cannot miss the feeling of pleasure in God's delighted references to his children. And this is one of my favorite. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. You ever been in turmoil and then you sat at the feet of Jesus and his love overwhelmed you and it brought comfort to you? You've been there, you know that verse. Notice the end. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Did you ever even envision or contemplate that God loves you so much, it's like he's got his angels and the host of heaven, and you are the object of what he's singing about. He's singing over you how he loves you how he cares for you, how you are so eternally important to him. The big news of the Bible is not that you love God because your love is fickle too, but that God loves you. He tattooed your name. I just saw on Facebook, one of my grandsons got a tattoo. I could go to town, I won't. <laughs> Come to think of it, some of you have tattoos, I could care less, that's your business. Sorry I even said that. He, <laughs> Come to think of it, if God's got a tattoo, what's wrong with it, I guess? 
Boy, did I get turned around fast, huh? Whoa, where'd that come from, Holy Spirit? He tattooed, he tattooed your name on the palm of his hand. His thoughts of you outnumber all the sands of the sea. You'll never escape his mind. You'll never escape his sight. You'll never flee his thoughts. You will never be out of the mind of God for one second. The Lord our God rejoices over us with singing. What a thought, because his love delights in us as a family. Uh, if only I could just call Kimberly up here and we could sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. God's love delights us as his family. His love declares us as his friends. John 15 is a beautiful chapter on relationship, our relationship with Christ. We abide in him. Our relationship with the family, we love him. Our relationship with the world, we testify. It's all there in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Four times the word love, it's the key word in John 15, 12 to 17 about the body of Christ. Four times love, but three times he uses the word friends. God calls you his friend, and he wants us to be his friend. No man with a trace of humility, no man, would ever first think that he's a friend of God. Because we're like Adam, we run and we hide and we cover. Abraham would never have said, I am God's friend. But God said what? Abraham, my friend. The disciples might well have hesitated to claim friendship with Christ. But Christ says to them, you are my friends. He says that to you. You're his friend. You're his most intimate friend. He's your most intimate friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thirdly, God's love delivers us from our fears. We said earlier that love always wills good to the object of the one loved. It never wills harm or evil. John wrote, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What a great word. What a great word for any of you that came in here today with a little bit of fear in your mind and your heart. Some of you are fear prone, very frankly. You're just prone to fear. You're prone to worrying. You're prone to fretting. You're, you're, you're thinking, what's tomorrow? What, what's going to happen to my children? What's going to my grandchildren? What's going to happen when I go to the doctor's appointment and I get the test back? And you're just fear prone. And all of us have some kind of a little bit of worry or fear or concern or whatever we want to color it. But he says, a mature, a perfect love, a, a mature love in God casteth out fear. Focus on the love of God, for there's no fear in love. Listen to that verse again. There's no fear in love. I read the story years ago of a mother who was scared to death of, of water. She never learned to swim. But she and her husband bought their first home. They were planning to have several children. They decided, wouldn't it be nice to have an in-ground swimming pool? And so they have an in-ground swimming pool. And she had her first son. Her son was two years old. There, She was out by the pool with her two-year-old son. And boy, the things happen so fast, don't they? All of a sudden, boom, 
two-year-old little boy fell in the deep end of the water. And there's mom, all alone. What do you do, mom? She didn't hesitate. What do you think she did? She dove in that deep end of the water, pulled her little boy out. For a moment, what happened? A mature love, a mother's love, cast out fear of the water. Do you see it? I thought, beautiful illustration of what God's love does for us. When I really love, that love casteth, casteth out fear. Now, I don't mean to say there's not one person here that doesn't have some thoughts or concerns at all tomorrow. I understand that. Those of us, especially, that are really getting older, we wonder. We wonder when, what, how. But we all know it's soon. So there's a little bit of, and yet to just bathe ourselves in the love of God, cast out fear. Well, what have we done today? What we've done every Sunday. I've skimmed the surface. I know it. You don't have to tell me that. I know it. I thought to, to really lay hold of the love of God and explain it as you would want to preach it and speak it. It's just like a child who reaches for the star. And he can no more get a hold of that star then I can get a hold of explaining the love of God. But then the thought came to me. By at least reaching for this star, maybe I've pointed some people to the star. And I hope, number one, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that this bread and this cup will be a visible reminder of how all your sins were bore in, by his, in his body as that bread represents. And when he shed his blood, which the cup represents, his blood washes away all your sin. And if you've never trusted Christ, you do it this morning. If you're unsaved and you don't trust Christ, you can take 15 cups of communion, 16 pieces of bread, won't affect anything. Because you're condemned, you're condemned anyway. The Christian is warned. Make sure your heart's right with God. No conflicts with him, no conflicts with one another. I close with this true story. Some of you who are, love theology will recognize the name right away of Karl Barth. He's a well-known name. Some call him the greatest theologian in the 20th century. He delivered one of his closing lectures of his life at the University of Chicago Divinity School. At the end of the lecture, the president of the seminary knew that Dr. Barth was in very ill health, was failing rapidly. So instead of opening up for questions to exhaust him, he told the student body, I'll just ask one question on behalf of all of us. And he turned to Dr. Barth and he said, of all the theological insights you have ever had, which do you consider to be the greatest of them all? And the student sat with pad and pencil ready. They wanted to jot down the premier insight of the greatest theologian of their time. Karl Barth closed his eyes. He thought for a moment. Then he smiled, and he opened his eyes, and he said to the young seminarians, the greatest theological insight that I've ever had is this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We really do come right down to the love of God in Christ. Oh, I hope, I pray you embrace it in your heart.